Welcome to episode 165. Today, we're learning how to create programs to welcome and support newcomers. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Newcomers to the country have very unique experiences. Many things in school are completely new to some of them. Some may have never stepped in school once, while others only step in when the season allows. Other newcomers experience trauma from fleeing violence back home. Newcomer programs fascinate me because they're not only designed for academic development of students, but also serve as a bridge between students' new country and their school. In this episode, newcomer consultant and specialist Lindsay Bird will share her main suggestions for schools and districts that want to create a robust newcomer program. Near the end of the podcast, she talks about how she created a curriculum for fostering literacy development, which grew students' literacy scores by 400 to 800 Lexile points. Make sure you listen all the way to the end. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so excited to have Lindsay Burt on the podcast. I watched her EdWeb webinar on supporting newcomers. I was like, perfect expert to have on the podcast because newcomers um, is a population that is really dear to our hearts and in the field. So Lindsay Burt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for giving me the platform to talk about the students we both hold dear. Can you tell me about how you spend your days and where you spend your days? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I currently am a consultant, and I also work for a nonprofit called Teach Plus. So um, through both lines of work, I um, help coach and support teachers, classroom teachers of all grades, uh, kindergarten through 12th grade, who are working to best support the students learning English as a second language in their class, which is a very diverse population. Um, And so we definitely encourage our teachers to get to know um, the very individual EL profiles and not to approach students learning English from a one-size-fits-all mindset. My particular passion based on my experience as a teacher is the uh, very specific and targeted needs of students that are new to the country, um, particularly in the higher grades, because as they arrive older, there's a bigger disconnect between what's being taught in the classroom at the grade level standard and often what their linguistic and academic history uh, presents when they first arrive. Yeah, it's quite a diverse population thinking about students who are learning English. They could be a person who is from Japan, who's uh, had English lessons to a person who um, is a refugee who has never um, went, who's never gone to formal education. So it's quite a diverse field. And those things don't uh, need different um, ways to support students. Let's talk about a story that uh, you've had with newcomers that has really informed your practice to this day. Oh, goodness. Um, I could tell so many stories. Um, I was so fortunate 
when I was a high school teacher to be a, uh, not only a classroom educator, but the coordinator of a program who uh, our, our mission was to serve newcomers at the high school level. We had immigrant, refugee, and asylum-seeking students from, over the years, 42 different countries. And it was interesting to look at the map I had in my classroom where the students would place a pin and a, a string to their name to identify where they were from and how my classroom in the Central Valley of California, you know, a town that most haven't heard of internationally, was a mirror of international events. Um, so on that vein, I would say that a story I would tell is we have prepared ourselves to the best of our ability to serve the Spanish-speaking population, because in California, that was historically who, who newcomers were. Um, when we opened our doors in 2009, I remember looking at my, my rosters and seeing names that I was assuming were not, um, you know, didn't match the Spanish-speaking population. And as I got to know my students over the upcoming months, we uh, quickly figured out that my town had become a, a war refugee resettlement hub. Um, these particular students in 2009 were Iraq war refugees um, who were uh, ethnically Assyrian. And because we had a Syrian, uh, a very large Assyrian population in the valley, they had chose to relocate here because they had family ties. So, um, you know, fast forward and through the, the decade that I spent in the newcomer program, we then welcomed refugees from Afghanistan, from Syria, from Yemen. And so um, I think one of the stories that I could tell as a newcomer teacher that really opened my eyes was, A, I had not prepared myself as an individual educator, nor had we prepared ourselves as a program to serve students who had never been taught the Roman alphabet. We had just naively assumed because we were focusing on Spanish speakers that they would come with those skills. Obviously, if a student speaks Spanish, although the alphabet's the same, there's different sounds, but there's so many cognates and just even the mechanics of writing is something we didn't arm ourselves with the knowledge we needed to teach that. So that was a big wake up call for me. What does it look like to teach a student um, that it, it comes from a language that uh, did not use the Roman alphabet? And in this case, these students uh, did not know the Roman alphabet. And then secondly, also another eye-opening moment by serving the refugee population was the assumption we have that students arrive with a certain grade level knowledge and that it's our job just to take everything they know in their language and to plug it into English, which is a huge assumption because refugees experiencing war, living in camps for years, being displaced, obviously, uh, for le very legitimate region, uh, reasons, have huge gaps in their formal education. And as we started to really reflect on our refugees, we realized they weren't alone, um, in fact, many of the students that we had been serving for generations that were coming from Mexico and Central America were living in conditions more similar to the Middle Eastern students living under official war than students in the United States. They were also escaping violence. They also weren't able to go to school because of threats. And so it really honed us in that our job was much deeper than just teaching a language that we also had to be able to remediate um, gaps in formal education, serve students who never had the privilege to go to school um, before, while not 
lowering standards or rigor or expectations, um, not only for the, those students, but also for the other students who were immigrants or refugees who came with high skills, high knowledge in their language. So that's why it's very complicated to best serve this population because um, in order to do so, you need to know who they are. You need to have the skills to serve them where they're at and also um, be prepared to not hold them back when they inevitably thrive, um, not keep them in a newcomer program past uh, their prime. In fact, our philosophy was to really push them out when maybe they feel that they're not 100% ready because in that that you know when when they were comfortable uh, or things got too easy that's when the growth would stifle so the balance of that getting to know all the nuances and the diversity and then structuring a program that provided the support the encouragement the confidence the wraparound services without sacrificing um, rigorous uh, expectations was something that took me years of reflection with my peers to develop, but I think it's like the essence of best serving newcomers. I mean, the worst thing we can do for students is those who have uh, fled uh, a place that's really unsafe, hoping to go to a place that's better. And then they go to a classroom that is so, so much safer in a country that's so much safer, but they're in the back of the room coloring. And, and, and that happens too much. Um, and it's interesting, I think that as a culture, the United States has a lot of growth to do because we definitely have an English only monolingual mindset, which a doesn't reflect who we are because we don't have an official language. And you know, we love to celebrate the fact that we're a nation of immigrants, yet when it comes to language, we want to strip, you know, people of their language. So I there's that, but then also. You, there's a unfortunate um, correlation between a person's ability to read, write, or speak in English and intelligence, and the two do not go hand in hand. Um, and so we need to make sure that we're not sticking kids in the back with a coloring book because we think they're not capable because they don't speak English. And I think that that starts at like how we remedy that what I call a fault in our culture is through education. So I think that not only are we serving the students and the families um, when we give them rigorous education, but we're also helping to change the narrative that it's actually a superpower to be bilingual. We should not be discouraging people from being biliterate. Would you talk a little bit more about that? Why is being a multilingual super, a superpower well, well, first of all, just, you know, it opens up your world in terms of communication and, um, in so many ways, personal and professional. So especially now that we're all connected, you know, online, I mean, the fact that we're having this conversation on two different continents, right? It's opening, the, because we're connected online, not only can we talk in a social manner, but just, um, you know, the opportunities that students have for a global economy when they are bilingual um, is, is absolutely outstanding. But in addition to that, statistics also show that when students test English proficient and in our system, we refer to that as reclassifying, when they are reclassified, meaning they began as a student learning English, they've mastered English, they're now fully biliterate, 
they statistically score higher on standardized tests, whether that be English or math, which proves that, you know, the rigor and the intelligence and, you know, the translingualing that goes on into the mastery of English as a second language has benefits beyond just the, 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 the use of the language, but it cognitively gives those students an advantage. So that's a, a dovetail question would be uh, for teachers who are saying like, yeah, okay, I know that um, being multilingual is a superpower and it's really great, but I, as a monolingual teacher, how can I support multilingualism when I only speak English? Well, my short answer to that would be if I can do it, they can do it because I was a monolingual teacher. Um, I, I joke, well, I, I joke that I know the bad words in 40 different languages, thanks to my teenage students. So <laughs> I definitely put my ear to the ground to hear their lingo, right? That was the joke. Um, that being said, I also would as often as possible um, ask them to teach me words in their language and just to like do it superficially, but to really try to, to make the, the accurate sounds that their languages made um, over and over again to model, first of all, the, the humility that you have to have um, to put yourself out there to do that um, and the practice and to create an environment where it's safe to make mistakes because through those mistakes is where growth happens. So whether you're a bilingual teacher who has students in your classroom that don't match one of the languages that you're, you're fluent in, or you're a monolingual teacher like myself, you can still celebrate and encourage bilingualism in the culture by which you set up. And now we have so many amazing tools via technology where giving students the opportunity to access the assets they have in their primary language should be commonplace with every teacher at every grade level because knowledge is knowledge. It doesn't count as knowledge if it's only in English. And so by no means does a teacher need to be aware of or fluent in every language represented in their classroom. They just have to have the mindset that the assets that their students are bringing are a gift and a tool and the skills to plug into that. Yeah, it's it's a far cry from when I started teaching or when I was an ESL student where it was like, no, you must speak English only. How will you develop your English skills if you speak another language? And now we understand that. Well, uh, as a social studies teacher, when I said when I had my students learn content and they research, they could research in any language. Yeah. Right? And so when they worked together, they could process in any language. too. I didn't have to know all of their languages, but I wanted them to use any language to be able to establish comprehensible input and to support their output. So that, so as a monolingual teacher, for those who are teachers who are monolingual who, or who do not share the language with the students, you can still encourage and create a space where students are using their languages to understand content and to produce um, language. Absolutely. Yeah, my entire, I too was a social science teacher. So uh, we, we, we share that content in common. And it's difficult. Um, at the high school level, social science is very textually dense. And if I'm going to give 
these students' grade level standards because, again, them not knowing English is not um, a representation of, of their ability. I need to be very thoughtful and very strategic as to how I can get them access. And exactly what you've described in terms of having them use their primary language, um, allowing them to process or research individually or with primary language partners in order to make connections and produce outcome. Um, time to stop and to think. I think too often we ask a question and assume if someone doesn't have an answer in five seconds, they don't know it because as monolingual teachers, especially, we've never had to have that process time of translingualing in our head. And so making it common practice to allow that to happen individually or to allow a group of students to have a conversation either in English or in their language prior to calling on them. Uh, honestly, I think these are great tips for teachers that are teaching students where um, English is a second or a third or a fourth language. I would add that many of my students came with linguistic skills and more than one language before they arrived. But really, I think now that we've realized that school in general needs to step away from the one size fits all expectation. A lot of the, the um, pedagogy that goes into best serving students learning English as a second language or newcomers in particular is just good teaching. And so by no we, by no means is it, um, you know, watering down expectations just because it wasn't how we were taught when we grew up. I just think it's the new face of what good teaching looks like. Yeah, and I'm grateful that the new face of what good teaching looks like is more inclusive and receptive to students. Absolutely. Let's actually talk about the structure of a new newcomer program. You talked about that. What does it look like to receive students to get to know students? Um, so that is, is the key is to get to know them because traditionally when a student enrolls, you get, um, you know, the quantitative data, such as their date of birth, the, you know, their U.S. school entry date, um, their age, these things that give you this superficial understanding of who they are. But it's not until you, with great intention, get the qualitative data about who they are as an individual that you can best serve them. So being really methodical in the enrollment process to do that with newcomers is something that, again, needs a lot of pre-thought and pre-planning because often it requires um, having some conversations in their primary language or being creative when there isn't a person who speaks their language to get that accurate information as quickly as possible. Um, so for example, um, you know, like the students I mentioned before that we met who were refugees, getting them to feel uh, comfortable sharing their experience with us um, you know, lack of education um, or, you know, the years in which uh, they hadn't been in school, their actual literacy rate in their primary language is something that occasionally, if not asked with um, empathy and with uh, explanation of the intentions for the question, you might not get an honest answer, right? Or there might be shame around being honest. Um, I found, you know, that honor and shame are big things that, um, you know, drive students uh, comfort sharing with you. And so explaining why we're asking and what we're going to do to help meeting to meet them where they're at and to ensure the students that the information they're providing us is so that we can help them achieve their goals. Because 
I, I tell you, no matter what my student's circumstance was prior to arriving, whether I literally had a young lady from Pakistan who had never picked up a pencil, um, but I want to be able to look her in the eye and say, you know, we're going to design a program for you where if you work hard, we're going to give you the skills, um, you know, to her, her, her dream was just to be able to be employable so that she could be you know, self-reliant. She was very, it was very important to her that she not be a burden on anyone um, and that she could take care of herself. And at the same time, you know, we had students who hadn't been to school for eight years, but said they want to be a doctor. Okay, great. That's why we're asking you these questions because we want to meet you where you're at so we can help you get where you want to go. Those are great examples. Thank you for showing, sharing those. You talked about asking students questions. How have you noticed that schools, um, first know, learn about these students? What tools do they use? Um, in, in my case, um, we had a relationship with the Refugee Resettlement Agency. And so for the first 90 days when the students and their families are in the country, um, you know, they basically are their legal guardian. So that was easy in the sense that they had um, permission to share with us um, the background of the family. Not all my students were refugees. Not all my students had, um, you know, the ability to come through a, a resettlement agency sanctioned by the State Department. So that information didn't necessarily have an English speaking person as a conduit. So it was tricky. Um, and to be honest with you, that's why we had we, we could not just stop at the enrollment process. Um, what we did as teachers was we had a, a, a weekly meeting and we would dedicate time to share notes on this is what you know Jose told me about his experience and you know this is what Maria told me because it was important to us to put the pieces of the student's story together to not just meet them academically but also to identify wraparound services they might need in order to thrive you know many students are coming just the act of moving to a new country is traumatizing in and of itself yet alone to consider the actual journey or the circumstances they live through to bring them here. So it's really important. It was important for us to be asking these questions and collecting this data to have a scope beyond academics and linguistics and what, what do these students need and their families um, to, so that they can switch from you know, the survival mode to the comfort of actually planning for the future. Because if you ask a student on day one, what do you want to do in five years? You know, they're thinking about their next meal. They're thinking about where they're going to sleep. It takes time. And so we want to provide that security and um, that, that comfort that allows their mind to think about and plan for the future. And that's where planting that seed of education being the key that opens the door to opportunity goes hand in hand. So you said partnering with uh, the resettlement agencies are mm -hmm. the nonprofits that are in the community to support them. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Let's move to talking about the instructional side. Like, so when students, how, how does a newcomer program, what are the recommendations you have for structuring a new program, program um, in particular, the instruction side? Um, that's a really great question. What we did now, I'm speaking of the high school level. Um, I, my number one recommendation to best serve newcomers is to think outside of the box, which is the typical high school experience. And what I mean by that is we normally assign a grade level with age. And then there's, you know, mandate, state mandated curriculum for every grade level. Um, 
you know, obviously newcomers are going to have the same expectations in terms of graduation requirements, but how they get there needs to be designed with who they are in mind. So what I mean by that is um, we would do assessments when students arrive to get an idea of do they have any exposure to the English language. Many arrived with great skills in English, so there's no need for them to start at level one. Why Why can't they start at level three or level four? You know, for us, we had what we called tiers, not levels. Tier one being a student who had no exposure to English probably didn't know the Roman alphabet. Tier four would be a student who was like on the verge of mainstreaming. So A, students don't have to start from the beginning. They get a customized schedule where they're at. Um, also, they can access that class and that curriculum according to their level or their tier, whatever you want to call it, um, based on their need, not based on their age and their grade level. So for example, um, because I was social science, I designed um, a course called uh, ELD Geography, which um, was the foundational social science class for the students who were tier one or tier two. So by our definition of that tier, you know, they had little to no exposure to English prior to, prior to arriving. So it was simultaneously content being taught with language acquisition and anyone could access it who needed it. So it was freshmen through seniors. It was, you know, 14 year olds through 19 year olds because if they need it, that's what they deserve. It shouldn't matter their age or their grade. So you have to really, I challenge teachers uh, and administrators at the at the secondary level to think outside of the box of, you know, the factory system, which is the traditional American high school student. I think we've had a lot of conversations about that system, not really serving even the native born English only students. I can bear witness to the fact that it certainly does not serve diverse newcomers. And so it's really important to um, to can, to build courses where students have access based on their level. And then the last thing I would add is the state, at least I'm in California, our state assesses English progression once per year. And in my experience and in my professional opinion, that's not enough because um, if you give me data that shows me my students' English level from last school year, that's not telling me who they are now. And if I'm doing my job and my colleagues are doing our job and we're developing their language in every single content class, then they might need to have the rigor in their schedule advanced to mid-year. So we built a program that did exactly that. We pulled internal data quarterly. And if and when a student was progressing, there was no need to wait until the semester or the next school year to move to the next level in their English language development course. And occasionally even within content courses, because we need to, again, advance the rigor as soon as they're ready. Because when it gets easy, that's when less learning is happening. It's very complicated. It's very confusing. It causes additional work and paperwork. It again challenges the tradition of what a high school student is and what students do. Um, but I, I feel that that's the way that you get students to advance most rapidly. And also, at the end of the day, if a student isn't advancing, if they've had two years of exposure to this foundational coursework, that you then have not just your opinion, but you have some data and some artifacts 
where you can go and have a professional conversation about why the student isn't progressing. Um, so that's why I think developing ways to assess and monitor growth and not, not on an annual basis, but on a more frequent basis for those two purposes is very vital. It's just like you're talking about formative data. It's uh, or, or it's like when we teach, we collect data consistently to figure out, okay, what's next? Uh, yeah. How to move forward with, with our students. You talked about uh, thinking outside the box and that's exactly what um, Lindy Berth said from uh, Colin Colorado. And she's and I asked her, what's the main recommendation? She said, we need to think outside of the box for um, English learners or multilingual students. So. You, you said, let's think outside of the box as customized schedules. So what would a schedule look like? Uh, or can you share examples of schedules you've seen for newcomers? Yeah, absolutely. Well, just given the, the story I said before, where when you typically receive, you know, birth date, maybe primary language, U.S. school entry date, I, as the coordinator of the newcomer program, literally got two young ladies from Afghanistan on the same day. They were about two months apart. On paper, they looked identical. They showed up and one had never been to school before. Um, the other had gone to an international school in Kabul. And I mean, when I looked at the coursework she had taken, she had been taught English. She was conversational. I just knew I, even before I did the assessments, I was like, wow, this this young lady isn't going to need us very long. So we were able to give the, the first young lady I mentioned who had had the opportunity to go to school a schedule that was completely understanding of her lack of formal education. All of her classes, with the exception of PE, were specifically designed for students with limited and interrupted formal education. So they were integrating both the basics of ling language acquisition, English acquisition, in addition to the remediation of content knowledge, her entire schedule. Whereas the other young lady from the international school was able to start at tier four of our ELD uh, scope of coursework um, and mainstream for almost all of her other classes with the exception of social science. And one of the reasons that um, we would use world history and US history as another opportunity to develop language was um, the, the textual complexity of it, it gives an opportunity to teach very high level academic language. Um, I used my uh, ELD tailored social science classes to teach academic writing um, because we cannot expect everything to happen in the English classroom, right? Every teacher, regardless of content knowledge, needs to be responsible for language acquisition. But most importantly, um, in social science, there's a lot of embedded assumptions about what students know, right? Because I'll take U.S. history, for example, you know, uh, Students take that in fifth grade, they take it in eighth grade, it, junior year, it picks up, assuming they have that knowledge. And then there's just a lot of inferred knowledge that we assume people have because they grew up here. And I don't think that the state standards consider the fact that, you know, a, a junior in high school that, that might not know that just because they haven't physically been present in the classroom. So we designed courses where, you know, we were, again, not assuming that they had that knowledge. So that second young lady got access to just the high level ELD, the tailored social science and was mainstreamed with support for every 
everything else. My program happened to be a school within a school. So our students had access to the mainstream curriculum all the way up through the AP courses if and when they were ready. Um, so that's just one example of how two students who on paper presented themselves as identical got drastically different customized schedules. I really love those two, like the juxtaposition of those two students. Even though, even though they came from the same country, their experiences were quite different. So can we talk about the student who was uh, had uh, interrupted education? What does that look like? I guess we're talking about remediation and acceleration. Yeah, so for that um, experience, it really, again, I, I often reflect on the lessons that I learned as an educator. Um, from my classroom, not from textbooks, not from college courses. And that young lady taught me a, a huge les lesson in going back to the, you know, the notion that, oh, we're so lucky because we have access to technology, right? So everything can be translated. Okay, great. Well, what if that student can't read in, or write in their language? Again, that's an assumption that we have, right, is that they have that ability. And in this case, she did not. So, um, we had to be <clears throat> very careful to give her access, verbal access, um, and some one-on-one -on -one attention from our bilingual paraprofessional in a way that, again, didn't pull her out and, and shame her, not to segregate her. I, too often when students arrive and, um, you know, they're not literate in their language, they, again, can be seated at a side table and given, you know, coloring rather than, you know, the assignment the other students are doing. So it was a gradual process of patience. Um, she happened to come through a refugee resettlement agency who had a team of what they called community good neighbors um, that were willing to volunteer and tutor. And so we were able to pair her up with someone who had verbal skills in her primary language to help her outside of school, um, which I think was life-changing for her. Um, and so it was a slow process and um, it was interesting. Another reflection I have on that student in particular was at first her, her father did not want to enroll her in school. And I have to say that I, I was guilty of making cultural assumptions. I thought, oh, you know, he thinks because she's a girl, she doesn't, you know, deserve to go to school. Well, after getting getting to know him and finding out the truth, he himself, a, a highly educated engineer from Afghanistan, he was totally for her going to school. He didn't want to enroll her because he thought a he didn't want to be a burden to us because he thought it was too late. And B, he was worried about her mental health. He thought how embarrassing that she's going to be there and she didn't go to school. Well, she had community because she wasn't the only one who hadn't gone to school or she wasn't the only one who had gaps in her education. So it, I'm not saying she never experienced any tinges of, of humiliation or shame, but I think that it, it lowered that shame level because she wasn't alone. Um, and he told me this story later. He was like, I I regret not wanting to send her to school. I underestimated your ability to, to help her. Um, and then the cherry on top was years after she left us, I, my family and I went out to a new Italian restaurant for dinner and guess who my waitress was? It was her speaking perfect English, working a side job as she was enrolled in the local community college. And we live for those success stories. Oh, absolutely. Um, can you talk to us about um, what principles of highly effective refugee education programs are? The number one 
recommendation I would have is the importance of the environment you create. Like I, it would be easy to use, you know, the lingo within education, like social emotional learning. And that is, you know, what we call it. Right. But um, my students, when we, we would have them reflect on, you know, what it felt like on their first day and, you know, the, the emotions, the feelings they had um, over and over and over again, you know, they would say things like, I just felt accepted. I could tell that you guys wanted me to be there. And so I think that that's really important is having an established program where students that are arriving under these circumstances can go to where the staff are aware of the possibilities of, um, you know, some of the barriers that they're bringing into the classroom, um, are aware that just because students come from the same country or speak the same language does not mean that they've had the same experience. So there needs to be a lot of cultural competence and humility on behalf of the staff. And then when students come in a place where they feel that they belong, they feel safe, they feel that they're not the only one, they have community with people who speak their language, or even just knowing that there's other immigrants and refugees in, in that classroom, I feel that it creates the um, self-efficacy that encourages students to take chances um, and to be brave because that's what they're doing. They're very courageous. And without that, I don't think that they're, everybody wants the silver bullet, right? Everybody wants the curriculum, the strategy. You know, I get asked that all the time as a consultant. Oh, no, no, no. I don't want you to talk about mindset or culture and environment. Just give my teachers the strategy. And I'm always like, well, you can't have one without the other, because if you think about it, there's so much curriculum out there. There's so many strategies. There's free online tools. Like if anything, it's overwhelming. You're you know, you know inundated with all these options. It's what conditions do we create to make them effective? And in this case, it's uh, the, the, the students need to feel it in their bones. Right. They can't understand English. So they need to visually see it. They need to see their culture represented. I had a flag that represented every student hanging from my ceiling and a, a map on the wall with the pins showing all the kids countries of origin so that even if they didn't know the, the sounds the Roman alphabet made, they could visually see that they were accepted and they were welcomed. Um, I think that's my number one recommendation just because without that, nothing else matters. Yeah, when you talked about that, I thought about um, strategies as the metaphor as strategies as seeds, uh, mm -hmm. but the mindset as like the soil. Like you can put a seed on a table and it won't grow, but if right. you put a seed um, in the soil, it will grow because it has the right context. And so strategies without the right context, with the right mindset that students can learn, that they can achieve with support, um, it these are just these are just strategies. There, there's no longer like a system into it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, you know, that soil that you just described as, you know, the conditions that help the seeds grow is, do you celebrate bilingualism? Um, do you think that your students are capable of learning, even if they don't, you know, know any English or the Roman alphabet? Um, you know, do, do you model the, the humility and the vulnerability um, to learn parts of their language um, or, you know, to, to reflect on your practices and, and how, um, you know, they might not be just because you did it for 20 years in this environment, maybe it's not serving these students needs. You need to be very, very reflective. I learned that because 
I had, especially with the refugee population, they would come in waves, again, reflective of international events. So right when I would think I had my bag of tricks, right, I thought I had what I needed to learn about their culture and the dynamics, a new group of students would come and I would have to totally start from scratch. And it just made me realize I, I, I should have been doing that always. You should never be assuming that, um, you know, a group are common or that you, that you know it all. And so um, I think that that's extremely important for all teachers, but particularly um, teachers of newcomers to just be insatiably curious about who they are and learn as much from them as they do from you, because without that, um, you know, you're... I think teachers are limiting the impact they can make. So let's end the podcast with two of the very specific questions, more specific questions. You talked about, okay, we have talked about mindset. Now let's move to curriculum. What okay. what might a curriculum look like? Um, you know, again, my expertise being secondary level, I can give you some recommendations about what we used, but I'll tell you this, there's a huge gap and a huge need for newcomer specific curriculum to be developed. And the reason that I say that is we we adopted um, our English curriculum, for example, and this is, I'm dating myself. This was in 2009. So it's not like we're talking about yesterday, but we, we, we picked what we felt was best of the options and instantly knew within a few weeks that it was just way too rigorous because it was geared more toward the long-term English learner experience, which statistically is the majority of English learners. So then we started to do research because we wanted to meet the students where they were at. And guess what? Was it there? Yeah, but it had like clowns and balloons because they assumed the kids were in like first or second grade, right? And so we were like, well, we're not going to insult these students by giving them this primary grade, you know, curriculum, you know, that's not just the graphics on it, but even the content of it, you could tell wasn't age, you know, intended for a teenage audience. So it was really, it took us years of reflection and um, like, what do we do? And we landed on a curriculum um, that it ironically um, was used for reading remediation. That's where I landed on the language that I cling to, which is acceleration, not remediation, because, um, you know, you're not remediating because they weren't here. They didn't have the opportunity to learn yet. So we took that, uh, that remediation curriculum, which gave us the data we needed to, to measure growth. It measured phonemic awareness and it measured reading comprehension. Um, and we used that as our curriculum, um, even though it wasn't intended for this audience. And um, this was called, uh, the curriculum was called System 44 and Read 180. It was through Houghton Mifflin. And it was interesting because they had packaged it as remediation. And so they, the, the doctor, Dr. Kate Kinsella, who had developed it in the literature, it said success is if a student moves up a hundred legsile points, that's approximately one grade level. If our curriculum can do that for a student, then it's successful. Where our students, because again, acceleration, not remediation, we were getting data reports where students were going up four, five, six, eight hundred points in one year to the point where Houghton Mifflin literally called us and said, what are you guys doing in Modesto, California? And they visited and um, actually created a video about our students because they had never considered using this curriculum for newcomer acceleration 
We did. We had to tweak it because again, it wasn't designed for them. So I give all of the ELD teachers in my program, nothing but praise because had we used it as it was packaged alone, it wouldn't have been effective, right? Um, It was two, two secrets to making that curriculum our magic backbone. And the two secrets were number one, our English teacher's ability to be creative and design around the newcomer experience. Um, So that meant, you know, developing some content on their own. And number two, the fact that I mentioned before, language acquisition wasn't only happening in the ELD class, it was happening in the social science class, it was happening in the math class, we even created electives called foundations of literacy and acculturation where language development oral language written language was being developed Um, and so through that coursework that we developed in addition to taking this curriculum and kind of twisting it for the newcomer experience we were able to get these astonishing um, results that being said um, we've maintained a relationship with Houghton Mifflin, and now they actually have designed a version of that um, through their English 3D program, which is newcomer specific to where teachers would have to, uh, you know, create their own supplemental curriculum like my colleagues used to have need to that does have the graphics and the content that's teenager appropriate. <laughs> so they were respond. They learned from us. And they were responsive um, to the community. I know that there are other, um, you know, curriculums out there that that are similar to that that didn't exist when we were looking for it in 2009, and that exists now. But I coach teachers in California. I have what's called an emergent bilingual change agent network. So I coach 17 teachers all throughout the state, many of which are passionate about you know language acquisition, but aren't. ELD teachers, a lot of STEM teachers, you know, math and science teachers who are hungry for curriculum that's specific to newcomers. And I've turned over every rock. I've joined every Zoom. I've done so much research. And if it's out there and if anybody hears this podcast and knows of like social science or science or math high school curriculum intended for newcomers, please let me know. But we can't find it. And so we're hoping that um, people are hearing these teachers, um, you know, cries because they want to desperately meet the needs of their newcomers uh, with rigor and, and, you know, and age appropriate. Um, content. Um, And right now they feel that they don't have access to what they need. And I know there's a lot of amazing people that are out there that are trying to curate a website that might be like a one-stop shop for people to go to in specific content areas or specific grade levels as a resource for this is the need I'm trying to solve. Because right now teachers are um, doing their very best to modify what they have, but um, we need to give them access to specific Specific and targeted curriculum for the newcomers' needs, especially for the students with limited and um, interrupted formal education. I mean, wow! That to have like Mifflin, the publisher, call you be like, "What are you doing? How are you getting your kids to move 400, 500, 800 Lexile points?" That's in a year. That's incredible. And I'm happy that they created a new program modeled off of what you do. Um, so, what? How did your teachers modify the Read 180 curriculum? So um, Read 180, I think, has a wonderful um, suggested process to do their, for their curriculum because um, it comes with like whole group instruction, but then the teachers are recommended to break into what they call rotations. 
So there's um, three groups and they, even in the curriculum, um, the, the data that's collected through the phonics and the reading inventories can recommend groups for teachers. Do you want the, te the, the groupings to be of similar skills? Do you want them to be, you know, diverse? So um, in those groupings, there is teacher time, there is library time where the students are independently um, working with text. And then there's computer time. And at the computer time, the great part about it is when they log in, the computer knows who they are. So if I arrived yesterday and I need to know the sounds of the Roman alphabet, that's what I'm getting visually and audio, you know, through audio, I'm interacting with the computer. But you've been here for nine months and you have a foundation in English. So the computer's giving you paragraphs and asking you comprehension. So it delivers that, you know, individual um, customized content. Where my teachers had to be creative was at the, the teacher time. Because again, the curriculum wasn't developed for newcomers. So the the scripted curriculum that was asking the what what it was asking the teachers to do was a little too too rigorous for the newcomers, especially the students with uh, gaps in their formal education. So that was the only rotation where they had to really invent lessons and be creative um, and create things from scratch. But it was great because at the same time they were getting that that foundation that they needed. And then when they went into the rotations at the library and the computer time, they were getting the, the rigor and the individualized attention they needed. So again, hats off to the ELD teachers because they did amazing work in that, that small group um, that wasn't provided through the curriculum. But like I mentioned before, Hootland Mifflin was receptive to hearing what they, not only what they needed, but referred to them as experts, called them into an advisory Zoom and said, you're the experts, tell us what we need. So now that newcomer package comes with the the small group curriculum for teachers to use um, as appropriate for newcomers. Your teachers are amazing. The teachers who um, just really think out again, outside of the box and how do we make this work for kids? What did they do in those small groups that are different or what did they create? Yeah, so um, a lot of it was that that was their opportunity to do a lot of very intentional teaching of both writing mechanics and also vocabulary, like verb conjugation. Um, because again, because they had three diverse groups, really what was happening in that small group depended on which group you know they were meeting with. I should also mention the great thing about this model of rotations and grouping students and the computer delivering to students exactly what they need is uh, sometimes an unconsidered dynamic of serving newcomers is the fact that they arrive when they arrive. Like countries around the world don't realize that in the United States, school starts in August or September, right? They come when they come. So if you deliver a lesson, you know, in California, we start in August. So let's say you, you, you know, you have this foundational lesson that talks about punctuation. Great. Well, what happens when someone arrives in November or someone arrives in April? We would have students literally enrolling, you know, the last week of school. So that rotation also gave the teachers the opportunity to be like, OK, I'm going to do my rotations based on level. And then, OK, I'm going to switch up my rotations because now I have 10 new students. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put the new students in a rotation and that punctuation lesson that I taught to all three groups back in August, I'm just going to teach to this one group because they weren't here to receive it. This 
podcast has been so practical. Like you've talked about the structure, you've talked about the mindset, and we've really gone down granular to like, what does that look like at the lesson level? And so we'll just have to have you come back and talk about like the strategies that uh, we didn't get to talk about because it's already an hour. Let's end the podcast with this traffic light teaching, which is red light, something that you ask teachers to stop doing in terms of working with newcomers. Yellow light, something that you would ask teachers to keep on doing in terms of newcomers. And green light, something that teachers can start doing. So it's stop, continue, start. Um, I think the number one thing I would tell, not just teachers, but just school staff or people in general is stop speaking lower and uh, slower and louder when a student doesn't know English. <laughs> because I tell you this, it doesn't matter how slow or how loud someone speaks Arabic to me, I still don't understand. And my students would often report to me that 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 gave them that signal that they weren't valued and that their 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 culture and their language wasn't an asset. And to be quite frank, it made, they in their words they say it made me feel stupid. So I would say definitely be aware of speaking slower and speaking louder because you might think that you're doing them a favor, but you're not. So um, that's uh, uh, the, the number one thing I would say, stop, stop, stop doing that. Um, in terms of continuing, I would encourage teachers of all content areas to be as creative as possible in providing structured ways for their students to produ produce verbal output um, as much and as often as possible with modeling, with structure, with sentence frames, with the opportunity to practice with partners prior to doing that. Um, when I teach uh, at the local credential program for the university, you know, and I say reflect on us as children, how many years did we speak before we ever picked up a pencil, right? Um, and so obviously we don't have the luxury of only speaking for three years, but at the same time, the, the use of the language is what really makes it stick in our brain. And so making sure to give uh, opportunity for students to use academic formal language in English in the respective content area is very important. Um, and if that isn't something for people can, to continue, I would say that would be my, uh, uh, you know, a green light is if you're not doing that, then you should. And in terms of what everyone should be doing is, um, I would say, to reflect on how different school was for us in terms of a well-behaved classroom or a teacher with good classroom management if the classroom was silent, right? So we need to rethink our experience as students in order to best serve the students that we have. And that reflection serves all students, not just students learning English as a second language, but in terms of, you know, classroom management, um, cultural norms, um, just because that is how we were taught or that was the culture, the expectations of teachers when we were in elementary school, even in college, like I reflect on some of the practices that I had as a student in higher education, that I understand why those were the expectations, because that was the way it was done. But um, 
it's just not good teaching anymore. And so I encourage everyone to have that reflection of what did I experience as a student that isn't in the best interests of my current students, particularly my newcomers, um, and also to plant that seed of curiosity with your colleagues, because the more we can uh, challenge one another to rethink what good teaching looks like and sounds like, because again, Serving newcomers and students learning English as a second language doesn't just happen in the English class, right? These are reflective practices that need to take place in every single content area. So I think that we would be doing each other a really big service if we just had that humility to constantly be retooling and breaking away from past practice. Again, how things were taught in the past is not the way we should continue to teach them. Lindsay, this has been so practical. You have the ear and the heart of Mifflin Hawcroft. Mifflin? Houghton Mifflin. Yes, Houghton Mifflin. I think you should ask them to say, let's partner up together to write a book about newcomers. <laughs> I would be reading that book so fast and sharing with as many people as I can. So thank you again, Lindsay, for Lindsay Bird, for being part of the podcast and sharing such a practical uh strategy approach to working with newcomers we'll have to have you come back to talk about the strategies for reading writing speaking and listening oh it would be my absolute pleasure thank you for inviting me i thoroughly enjoy because this truly is my passion before we recap this episode i have a favor and an invitation my favor is to ask you to please review this podcast my invitation is to check out my three courses on english learner portal one is on creating the conditions for MLs to thrive, one on teacher collaboration, and one based on my co-authored book with Beth Skelton called Long-Term Success for Experienced Multilinguals. Now, on to our recap. Since newcomers have very unique needs, we should feel free to create programs and services that are outside of the box of what we're used to serving other MLs usually who are not new to the country. This first starts by creating a welcoming space for them together. It doesn't mean that these newcomers are isolated the whole day from the general school community, but they just need a safe nest where they can return to on a regular basis. This gives them the firm ground to then spread their wings. On the instruction side, Learning academic language should not fall on the shoulders of the ELD specialist alone. Content teachers need to explicitly teach the academic language requirements to comprehend and to communicate with content. I see the path forward as ELDs collaborating closely with content teachers to provide a smooth transition for newcomers. Thank you for listening. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. <laughs>